investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 25 of the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kessling. Today is Friday, August the 2nd. A lot of really important market events to discuss this week. Off the top, we'll be chatting about President Trump, how he escalated the U.S.-China trade war with brand new tariffs. What did he do now? The Federal Reserve, as expected, it cut rates by 0.25%. We're going to chat about what the market did on that event. Beyond Meat Insiders, cash out of stock in droves. How should investors interpret this dramatic insider selling? Some M&A news, London Stock Exchange strikes a deal to acquire Refinitiv. Why did LSE's stock price rally by more than 20%? And lastly, we're going to have a discussion on a recent blog post just on merger arbitrage, a strategy for consistent profits in the market. We got some escalation in the U.S.-China trade war this week as President Trump announced on Twitter, of course, that the U.S. would be placing a 10% tariff on an additional $300 billion of Chinese goods. This extends tariffs to essentially all Chinese imports uh, into the U.S. The new tariffs would take effect September 1st and cover $300 billion in Chinese goods, which includes smartphones, apparel, toys, and other consumer products. Now, these come on top of 25% tariffs already imposed on $250 billion of Chinese imports into the U.S. The tariffs would affect about $45 billion in cell phones, $39 billion in laptops and tablets, and $5.4 billion in video game consoles. So some pretty big effect, potential effects on consumer prices of electronics. The tariff plan threatens maker of the iPhone, Apple specifically. They manufacture effectively all their products in China, so they would either have to eat the cost of these tariffs, which they probably won't do. So likely those costs are gonna be pushed onto the consumer, which would be substantial. There's estimates that these new tariffs would slap about a $40 cost on the price of an iPhone. Now, Trump suggested that negotiations, recent negotiations with China have gone poorly, with China failing to follow through on its pledges to buy more U.S. farm products, specifically soybeans, and also they failed to restrict the flow of fentanyl into America. And Trump claims that more and more Americans are dying uh, from these drugs flowing from China to the U.S. However, this tariff hike was opposed by many in the administration, including U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, White House Economic Advisor Larry Kudlow, and National Security Advisor John Bolton. So pretty much Trump kind of going kamikaze here, acting on his own on this, despite all the warnings from his inner circle. I just wanted to get into some of the background to review how this trade war between the U.S. and China has progressed thus far. It started out last year with Trump slapping tariffs on Chinese imports of 50 billion of industrial products. He further added another 200 billion in tariffs in late 2018. Now, in May, after discussions, negotiations with China broke down, Trump increased the tariffs on that $200 billion from 10% to 25%, and then he also threatened to impose tariffs on the remaining $300 billion of Chinese imports that were not subject 
to tariffs. Now, uh, on Thursday, yesterday, Trump signaled that he would follow through on that threat to have tariffs on that remaining $300 billion. So effectively, it would cover all imports uh, from China into the U.S. Now, Beijing, they're not happy. They issued a swift response with China's commerce ministry vowing to retaliate with necessary countermeasures against the U.S. move, suggesting it was more likely to dig in in the face of Trump's tariffs rather than make concessions. And that's really been the story of what's happening here. And it really makes no sense because Trump continues to further ramp up more and more tariffs. And clearly these threats aren't working because China just goes and retaliates. They effectively provided no concessions, and some speculate that this most recent temper tantrum from Trump was spurred on by a Wall Street Journal article this week that indicated that the slow progress in talks was partly the result of a new tactic from Beijing, which increasingly thinks that waiting may produce a more favorable agreement. So Trump getting the hint that perhaps China is dragging its feet on discussions, and perhaps he thought that implementing the additional round of tariffs would, uh, you know, spur some progress there. But ultimately, thus far, all these increasing tariff threats and even the implementation has really had no net effect on improving uh, or getting any sort of concessions out of China. What are your thoughts on this increase in uh, the escalating trade war with China here? Yeah, I think the public is a little bit desensitized to the view of, of more tariffs. It seems like every month there's new tariffs being implemented by Trump, and so the effects just seem to be having less and less of an effect on the negotiations. And after this, he was he had indicated that he could move the tariffs from 10% all the way up to above 25%. So yeah, I really don't know. I would agree with you. I really don't think that this is having the effect that he would hope. One other industry, you mentioned Apple. Uh, the other, other industry that is affected by this would be the toy industry as they source 85% of their products from China. So that would affect Hasbro and Mattel. And so in in the situation with Apple, you mentioned that they have the choice of whether to cover the cost of the tariffs to eat the cost themselves or pass them along to their consumers. Well, with the toy industry, they do have a, a little bit of a struggle in passing along these prices as toy prices for the holiday season, which is rapidly approaching, have already been negotiated and these are set with the retailers already. So that could be a situation to watch for the toy industry. But you know, my, my last comment on that would just be that you really don't tariff your way to prosperity and that seems to be the way that Trump is, is a, trying to appeal to his base. I really don't think that's a sound economic strategy. Yeah, he really seems to have a primitive understanding of basic economics. Ultimately, the U.S. consumer pays for these tariffs, right? But nonetheless, I mean, the U.S. economy is still holding up quite well. Had a jobs report this week, 164,000 jobs, which were in line with expectations and still a great number. Unemployment at 3.7% near an all-time low. So the U.S. economy really, uh, you know, doing well here. GDP growth north of 2%. And you see, uh, conversely to that, that that the Chinese economic figures, economic growth there hitting, I believe, 27-year lows. And the numbers increasingly looking poor 
out of China, uh, but nonetheless, they seem to want to be digging in their heels here, less concerned about economic impact and more so it seems like an ego thing that President Xi doesn't want to show any weakness, and I believe the uh, Chinese people are behind that attitude. Uh, we want to get into some numbers. Obviously, the market did not like this right after the, the tweet of additional tariffs, the Dow Jones plummeting uh, 550 points, so that's about a 2% drop just from this news. Uh, the yield on the 10-year treasury, and now remember yields move inversely to prices, so the yield fell to its low, lowest level uh, since 2016, so there's a uh, flight to safety here, people bidding up bonds and uh, treasury bond prices increasing. Yeah, and with your comment with regards to China's slow moving and being willing to play the long game is another thing to keep in mind is that they don't have to worry about an election next yeah. year where Trump is very worried about his, his his next campaign. Yeah, and who knows? Perhaps Trump is playing 3D chess here and we don't even know it and it could be some, uh, some re-election move that ultimately works, but that is yet to be seen and we'll closely follow this situation. On to the Fed, and this really dovetails nicely with the economic discussion and the escalation in U.S.-China trade war because what the Fed did is this week they cut interest rates for the first time since 2008. The central bank cut its benchmark overnight lending rate by 0.25% or 25 basis points and this was really expected by the market. One of the reasons the market expected this rate cut is to offset any potential economic weakness from the ongoing trade war. Now, the Fed stated that this rate cut was driven by global developments for the economic outlook, along with muted inflation pressure. Ultimately, it seems like it's a preemptive strike to cushion the economy from a global slowdown, number one, caused by this trade war, and number two, um, you know, there's challenges in Europe, you're seeing poor economic data there, Brexit. But the Fed said that it will ultimately continue to monitor how incoming information will affect the economy, adding that it will continue to act as appropriate to sustain this record-long U.S. economic expansion. Now, the main issue here, Chairman Jay Powell did have a conference after the announcement of this rate cut, which brought the uh, benchmark rate to between 2% and 2.25%. Chairman Powell stated that this was, quote, a mid-cycle adjustment. Now, the market really had a lot of trouble with this because that indication that this is just a mid-cycle adjustment, many interpreted that as being a one-and-done type scenario where they just cut rates once instead of going into a brand new rate cutting cycle which would see interest rates drop significantly lower after a number of consecutive rate cuts. Got a quote here from Scott Minard, the CIO at Guggenheim Partners. He stated, quote, Powell increased uncertainty around the direction of policy. The discussion about the future path of interest rates was ham-handed and probably undid a lot of the benefit of the rate cut today. Interesting quote from Trump. He went on Twitter and stated, quote, what the market wanted to hear from Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve was that this was the beginning of a lengthy and aggressive rate-cutting cycle. As usual, Powell let us down. So that really sums up nicely what the market was thinking because, you know, equity markets went down pretty significantly after he announced in his conference that this was really that uh, mid-cycle adjustment and those were his thoughts there. 
Another interesting fact was the decision to cut rates also drew dissents from two Fed members. There's Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren and Kansas City Fed President Esther George. They argued for leaving rates unchanged, so they are against uh, rate cuts as at this moment. Both have raised doubts about a rate cut in the face of the current expansion. As uh, we discuss, unemployment rate at near all-time lows, along with robust household spending. But what this rate, uh, rate cut did is it effectively reversed uh, the Fed's December rate increase, which came during a period in which it believed interest rates were still low enough to spur growth and inflation. But since then, I mean, the inflation numbers have come in. Uh, ever since 2009, we really haven't had a sustained period with inflation north of 2%. That's ultimately one of the Fed's mandates is to get inflation, um, you know, they call it stable pricing, but they ultimately want to see inflation around that 2% level. Currently core CPI at 1.6%. As we discuss unemployment rate, that is their other mandate near all-time lows at 3.7% in June. Then, uh, you know, the U.S. economy expanding at 2.0%. 1% last quarter, which is also a very good number. So the argument against rate cuts here certainly makes sense. However, you know, the Fed really needs to take into account what the market is expecting. And as we discussed on last week's episode, the market had was pricing in a 100% chance of a rate cut. It was ultimately, was it going to be 25 basis points or 50 basis points? And the market was expecting, I believe, an 83% chance of a 0.25% cut, which in fact, they did get. Now, this rate cut marks just the fifth time in the past 25 years that the Fed switched from raising rates to lowering rates. In the four prior cases, the Fed never cut rates just once. So I think here, despite what Powell says, and we've discussed many times that you should ultimately watch for what Powell does, not what he says, because he has been known to flip-flop, to do 180-degree turns and effectively uh, you know, negate the previous language that he has given to the market on these decisions here. Nonetheless, the market is pricing in a 94% chance of a rate cut next month in September. So what are your thoughts on the recent Fed cut and all this consternation in the market about uh, you know, Fowles, Powell's quote, mid-cycle adjustment language. Yeah, with regards to the mid-cycle adjustment language, it, it is helpful. You did mention the four previous times that the Fed cut rates, and it really looks like what happened in 1995 and 1998, where the Fed made a few, I believe it was two or three small cuts and the economy did avoid a recession. That's what it really seems like he means by a mid-cycle adjustment. So that could just be the commenters not really understanding what having a historical context for what he's saying, or it could just be Powell just really struggles with communication as we've as we've discussed before. Yeah, that has been the case thus far in his term. Absolutely. And as well, it, while we're on the note of history, I did want to put this into context. So the last time that the Fed was cutting rates was in 2008 after the global financial crisis. And in comparison to that, the benchmark rate at that time was more than double where it's at today. And the Fed asset portfolio today is 18% of GDP versus 5% at that time. So if you look at those two 
like from where it's starting from, those are very different scenarios, which is quite interesting. And like you had mentioned with the jobs data, the inflation numbers that are below the 2%, but they're in that 1.6 range. This is not an economy that's, you know, very weak. So, you know, if, if it was my guess, it would be that, yes, there is a couple of rate cuts this year. And then, you know, ideally that would avoid any sort of recession, barring any sort of global events. But, you know, that, that I think that's the way that Powell's looking at it. It just remains to be seen. And on your comment from uh, Trump's quote, I believe, when he talked about, you know, disappointing us, I, I think you could just substitute us for me from Trump's point of view, where really just it was what he was looking for, and Powell just continues to d- disappoint him, but Trump does have political motives. Right, because Trump wants to see GDP growth of at least 3%, and he wants to see the stock market hitting new all-time highs. So they're really his uh, his main goals with criticizing the Fed, and he wants ultra-low, ultra-loose monetary policy. Now, commenting on, you know, you touched on historical uh, monetary policy. And I think ultimately here, as for the the previous rate hiking cycle, the one that effectively just ended, I think they're looking to return rates to the 3 to 4% range. But ultimately, prior to the cut, they only got to 2.25 to 2.5%. So not quite their previously viewed neutral rate. In addition to that, the size of the balance sheet, uh, they wanted to get it down to about 1.5 to 2.5 trillion. However, um, you know, it's currently at 3.8 trillion and now looks like it's going to stay there because they uh, ultimately halted the unwind of the balance sheet there. And it will actually grow because the interest payments will be reinvested. So it will actually continue to grow. Touching on some market action of the US dollar, this was bullish for the US dollar. It actually touched its highest value in more than two years and the market uh, u.s markets were down uh, 1.2 percent on the news largely that uh, powell language regarding the mid-cycle adjustment but uh, interesting uh, development there will obviously closely cover any sort of uh, developments especially the next uh, fed decision come september getting to some news on everyone's favorite alternative meat company. So what happened this week was Beyond Meat sold nearly half a billion worth of stock at $160 per share. And this was at a stunning 18.6% discount to its closing price. Now that 500 million worth of stock was all insiders selling, uh, insiders cashing out of their stakes in the alternative meat company. Now, this share sale came amidst a nearly tenfold increase in the price uh, since Beyond Meat's recent IPO. As you remember, this IPO came into the market at $25 per share just in May, and the stock had really, or has rallied nearly tenfold. It peaked at $230 per share. Ultimately, they're selling shares here at $160, so certainly a large increase since the $25 IPO, not the peak of the market at $230, but uh, relatively close. Now, the biggest beneficiaries of this secondary offering, they call it a secondary because the company is uh, receiving no capital 
from the uh, 3 million shares sold in this offering. So the main beneficiaries will be venture capitalists who bet on Beyond when it was a private company. So there's uh, Kleiner Perkins, which are selling uh, over 600,000 shares, and this will net them, I believe, almost $100 million. And they have access to uh, more. They could sell, uh, I believe, an additional 100,000 shares. Now, the CEO is selling $6 million. The CFO is selling $9 million worth. So those guys getting a good chunk of change there. But I'd like to note that none of them are cashing out completely. They're just sort of taking a little bit off the table. An interesting aspect here is that there was a six-month, 180-day lockup on the IPO, which would have prevented IPO or private company holders, those before the IPO, from selling prior to October 29th. But they managed to get out of that lockup. Do you want to chat about how that happened here? Yeah. So the important thing that investors need to understand that this 100-day lockup is agreement between the company and the IPO underwriters. This isn't a regulatory lockup or an agreement for that matter with current shareholders. So it's really up to the underwriters to allow them to break this lockup and sell shares into another offering. And so I guess the question would be, why would the IPO underwriters agree to this as they had just sold a number of shares in the IPO to their clients? And the simple reason for that is that the initial IPO was done at $25 a share, and the share price before this announcement was to over $230 per share. So those initial IPO investors had had over a 10x. Right, and a lot of this is just supply demand uh, dynamics because as we've seen in a lot of recent IPOs, we call it a low float IPO. And I believe there's 60 million shares and in the IPO they offered, you know, maybe 12 million. 12 million was yeah. It, yeah. So that was only about 20% of the float. And so there's a lot of demand from, uh, you know, a lot of millennial speculators but uh, not too much supply. Uh, so what the um, underwriters want to do is increase supply of shares such that they're not so volatile. So they can uh, you know, get those supply dynamic, supply demand dynamics more in check. But I'm considering, you know, I'm calling them out on this one. I'm calling it beyond ridiculous. And I really want to warn investors here. We did see a recent precedent where something very, very similar happened in Tilray. As you remember, Tilray was a cannabis producer, another heavily hyped uh, new growth industry uh, that had a low float IPO and their stock also rallied significantly since their IPO. And it, they, I believe they allowed uh, insiders to cash out before the lockup. And when the CEO was asked uh, if he was selling in it, he started laughing on CNBC and really plowed out his shares at a highly infl inflated price. And I believe since then, Tilray stock is down roughly 80%. So I think that's a interesting precedent for Beyond Meat investors to observe because yeah, getting to valuation here, their market cap is currently $10 billion. They reported quarterly losses of about $10 million on revenue of about $67 million. So they're expected to produce annual revenue of about $200 million. So you look at that valuation, they're trading at 50 five zero time sales. Meanwhile, their peers trade at one time sales. So Beyond Meat has a valuation 50 fold higher than their competitors. And this is going to be a extremely competitive space. You see a lot of the traditional food producers getting into this market and investing a lot to bring some serious competition to Beyond Meat. 
Absolutely. And in terms of the competition, what Beyond Meat plans to spend in CapEx this year, I believe, is something around $40 million. That's not a lot in the grand scheme of things, especially when you have competitors like Tyson, who, you know, if they just take it as, you know, a percentage of revenue, that could be easily in the billions that they would be investing into the business. Oh, and I saw that Maple Leaf Foods expects to have north of $200 million in alternative meat sales in the next few years. Absolutely. And the other aspect is you had mentioned the low float of this of this particular stock. And so, yeah, you had mentioned it was about 20% of shares outstanding was their float. So now they're increasing that, effectively increasing it to 24%, which is increasing that float by 20%. And so that may not sound like a big deal, but in terms of this, like you had mentioned, the supply and demand, that just means that there will be more shares available to short and at reasonable borrow rates. And right. so it could become a more normalized valuation. Right. And those borrow rates are in the triple digits, well north of 100%. And that is or could be one reason on the buying pressures is a massive short squeeze. So I think this is beyond ridiculous for a couple of reasons. Number one, you know, we've never been a fan of these low float, heavily hyped IPOs. Uh, they usually end in investor heartbreak with uh, the shares just, you know, declining precipitously. But the insiders plowing out here, I mean, I don't blame them. They're taking advantage of Mr. Market, giving them a ridiculous price. But still, you know, it's not the best look uh, when we believe that the shares are kind of manipulated here, given those low float dynamics. And number two, I'm not a big fan of VCs, venture capitalists, you know, plowing out garbage to the public markets. It just seems like a really low quality IPO with respect to the valuation and the competitive dynamics. You know, nothing to say on the products, but it really is, uh, you know, disappointing to see that venture capitalists view public markets as just a dumping ground to get rid of the stuff that they no longer want, looking to capitalize on you know, retail investors, pensions, mutual funds, and it's really, uh, I think it's shame. On to some M&A news, interesting event in the mergers and acquisition space with the London Stock Exchange. LSE announced an agreement to acquire financial data provider Refinitiv in a 27 billion dollar deal. This acquisition will expand LSE's trading business beyond just shares and derivatives and into currencies. In addition, it'll make the combined company into a strong rival for Bloomberg. Now, Bloomberg is the dominant distributor of financial market data. You find it on effectively every trading desk. Refinitiv offers a competing terminal called Icon, which you know isn't nearly as successful, but they're really trying to take market share away from Bloomberg, who's been the number one market player for decades. Now, the LSC specializes, they really specialize in the plumbing of financial markets with assets such as provider FTSE, Russell. Obviously, these, um, you know, manage the FTSE and Russell indices. As you know, Russell, pretty big in the small and mid-cap space. Also have Clearinghouse LCH as well, obviously, as its namesake. Stock Exchange, the London Stock Exchange. Refinitiv is known uh, in addition for its icon portals, also um, just financial data, you know, everything from stock prices, bond prices, commodity prices, basically everything any sort of financial manager could rely on. 
The ownership of Refinitiv is really interesting because it's currently owned by a consortium of investors uh, led by Blackstone, Thomson Reuters, and including a CPP, the Canada Pension Plan. So all Canadians really benefiting from this deal to the London Stock Exchange. Now, this merger of Refinitiv with the LSE is just coming 10 months after Blackstone bought the majority stake in the unit from Thomson Reuters in a deal that closed just last October. So a quick flip for the uh, LBO purveyors here. Basically, Blackstone, CPP, Thomson Reuters maintained a stake after that they divested uh, this refinitive subsidiary in the deal just uh, 10 months ago. However, I should note that the private equity consortium here, they're only getting shares and they're going to be uh, major shareholders in LSE. So they're not really cashing out. They are monetizing it, but ultimately they're just receiving paper for this deal. And fun fact here, the deal's origins actually date way back to 2013 when the CEO running Thomson Reuters Financial and Risk Division, which they did rename Refinitiv. He was actually introduced to Blackstone's head of private equity uh, at the Chelsea Flower Show. So you never know what certain uh, networking events or social events can get you. But clearly that back in 2013, they kind of structured this deal to have Blackstone involved and then perhaps flip it to a financial player, which is clearly what's happening here. Now, the strategic rationale for LSE is they hope that the Refinitiv deal will help it transform into a major global market data and infrastructure player. What they're going to see from this deal is they're going to see some major earnings accretion, meaning that earnings per share will rise by more than 30% in the first full year after this deal, which the market really liked. LSE's stock was up over 20% on the news. What are your thoughts on this uh, large $27 billion M&A transaction? Yeah, so number one, you'd mentioned the accretion to EPS. One thing that this deal is also going to add for the LSE is a very leveraged capital structure as uh, Refinitiv had about $12 billion worth of debt. So that does add some balance sheet risk to them. The other thing that I would like to mention was you had, you had mentioned uh, the Blackstone Consortium and that deal in October 2018. Well, that that was a deal for that was valuing the company at 20 billion, whereas this deal is valuing the company and its debt at 27 billion. So a nice little increase for Blackstone. And I believe because that Blackstone had put on some debt to the company, that this actually results in them doubling their initial investment. So over yeah. over 10 months, that's a great investment return. And as you had mentioned, that's for all our fellow Canadians as well. 100% gain. Absolutely. And yeah, the other thing that I would like to point out is that Refinitiv actually is growing at a substantially lower rate than the LSE's core business, as they're just growing revenue at a currency adjust adjusted rate of 3% mm -hmm. after a few years of decline. So I don't know if that growth is sustainable, whereas their rival FactSet is uh, another rival to both Refinitiv and Bloomberg, is growing their, their revenue at effectively double that in the 6% range. So I wanted to point that out as well in terms of the competitive dynamics. Right, so certainly not a quickly growing asset here, more like a you know, steady, low growth uh, financial data business. However, the market really liking it, which to me presents a very interesting dynamic because we cover mergers and acquisitions a lot on this podcast. And typically what we've seen 
uh, are the acquirer's stock really tanking once they announce any M&A in this environment? Specifically, we saw it on the uh, you know Oxy and Adarco deal, and you know we can name countless deals in which the acquirer's stock declined by double-digit percent on uh, any sort of large M&A. However, in this one, interesting contrast, you're seeing LSE shares rise by over 20%, and that's I think caused by two things. Number one is. So they're buying a private asset. So a merger arbitrageurs can come in and arbitrate this deal. And how that would work is typically you buy the target and you short the acquirer. So LSE is seeing no selling pressure, no hedging pressure from merger arbs on their stock. So that is one dynamic that typically causes the acquirer's stock to decline in public market M&A transaction. Number two, people quoting the earnings accretion. So if you maintain the same earnings per share multiple and earnings per share rises by 30%, well, then the share price should rise by 30%. But nonetheless, the market will discount, will typically, the dramatic increase in leverage here because, as you indicated, that does increase the default risk of the pro forma entity. So some really interesting dynamics on this deal but looking like quite the home run for the private equity backers of Refinitiv. Put out a blog post this week entitled Merger Arbitrage, a strategy for consistent profits in the market. And what we detail is really how this strategy works and how and why it would be a benefit to a diversified portfolio. Because number one, it really is you know a tried and true hedge fund strategy that has been successful, has a long track record of success in the market of really low volatility, absolute return, providing that you know really consistent return profile at low volatility for investors and we've got some charts in here since 2005 the arbitrage index has provided a 4.6 percent annualized return so nearly five percent which was 50 basis points or 0.5 percent higher than the bloomberg barclays u.s ag index which is the broad based bond index and it was uh, 300 basis points or three percent higher than short-term treasuries and that's really how merger arbitrage works we'll get into a simple example i talk about red hat which was a recent acquisition of IBM. Now, after the Red Hat deal was initially announced at $190 per share, the stock traded at uh, you know a pretty significant discount to that price of about 12%, and that deal closed uh, in, call it, seven months, giving merger arbitrage investors who did provide liquidity, step into the market, allow long-term Red Hat investors to exit at a discount to the merger price, but uh, merger ARBs, the investors that invest in these deals and earn that merger spread, they need to take on the risk of a deal breaking, which in the Red Hat deal, it closed successfully in seven months, providing a, an attractive annualized return of north of 17% annualized. Now you put together a portfolio of those you know, attractive risk reward arbitrage trades, and you can generate some pretty good results. As we indicated, the uh, arbitrage index over the past 15 years, averaging almost 5%, and that was at a volatility level of annualized around 4%, which is a bit higher than bonds, but 
you know, a fraction of equity market volatility, which is typically in the 15, 16% range. So arbitrage, about one fourth the uh, volatility. Uh, and it really is one of the best performing hedge fund strategies out there on a risk reward basis. And we touch on this further in the blog post on just um, you know, some strategies around merger arbitrage, how you run a merger, char- merger arbitrage strategy, how you handicap the deals, and ultimately how you want to structure the portfolio. So I encourage you to read it. Um, there's a lot of interesting details of uh, our experience running a merger arbitrage strategies and how we view the risk management framework behind those strategies. Yeah, so just a couple questions here, I guess really surrounding the risk management framework is could could you just describe how you would structure a trade where you viewed there was a high probability of a bidding war? Yeah, so the bidding war is, you know, the best possible news that could happen to an arbitrage. It's basically what you're dealing with Every trade you get into, you want the deal to close successfully, but inevitably some of them break. I find, you know, basically one or two deals in your portfolio per year will break. And a deal break is about as costly as 10 successful deals are. So you're basically typically losing tenfold of what you expect to gain from the successful closing versus a deal break. And so you mentioned the concept of a bidding war which is just catnip to ARBs because that offers substantial upside uh, multiples of what you expected on um, the typical standard merger arbitrage gain. And these bidding wars ultimately offset uh, the pain and the losses that go with the deal break. And so if a bidding war occurs, I mean, number one rule is you always want to hold the stock. And I always want to hold it uh, and see it through the end of the bidding war. You may not uh, top ticket, but uh, you'll, you know, you'll be around to really reap the rewards as you know, the original buyer and the interloper go back and forth at increasing prices. And if there is share consideration involved, you don't ultimately know who's going to successfully close the deal. So in my opinion, in that type of situation, you would just want to be outright long the target. Call it riding the lightning where you're unhedged. But ultimately, if it's a target and it's in the bidding war, more often than not, that stock's hitting higher. And so another aspect to do with risk management is that if, a, if it's a share deal and the acquirer has to issue a certain amount of shares, there would be a buy side vote. And so why would you want to avoid a buy side vote? Right. And by buy side vote, you mean that the deal requires shareholder approval from the acquirer in the transaction. Now, why that is so risky to arbitragers in a, in a scenario in which the acquirer is issuing sufficient shares to require from a regulatory standpoint for them to get approval for that share issuance. Now, what that does is it effectively puts them in play, meaning that anyone who's interested in uh, buying the acquirer, they basically have the ability to do so in that situation. The way that works, the way that dynamic works is if an acquirer makes a play for the target and they require a vote, And if an interloper steps in and then makes a play for the acquirer, 
well, how are the acquirer's shareholders going to vote? Are they going to vote for an acquisition, which likely caused the share price to go down, or are they going to vote to sell the company at a large premium? Ultimately, well, obviously they're going to vote to sell the company at a large premium. So that buy side vote is really just inviting an interloper to come with an unsolicited or hostile offer for the acquirer in that situation. So as an arbitrager, you never, ever, ever want to be short an arb trade, long the target, short the acquirer, when that acquirer requires a shareholder vote, unless you have the situation where there's a controlling shareholder and an interloper cannot buy the company under any circumstances, or if the company is what I call unacquirable, where they're so big that no one can buy them, say Exxon Mobil or Google or Apple. In those situations, you know, you can put on those trades where you long the target, short the acquirer, but if the acquirer presents a bite-sized acquisition to a competitor and they require a vote, stay far away because in the situation where an interloper does come over the top and offer to buy the acquirer for a large premium, now you are short the acquirer's stock. So not only will your target fall because that deal will fall apart, so you'll face large losses on your long target position, making the matters much, much worse. You're short the acquirer's stock, which is now subject to a hostile bid, and so you're gonna get your face ripped off on your short position, so you're losing on both ends, and you can lose well over 100% on your position because you know your long position is tanking, your short position is ripping. So ultimately, in my opinion, it is never worth the risk of putting on um, you know, a merger arb trade where the buyer ultimately requires a buy side vote, a vote of the acquirer's uh, shareholders uh, to allow them to take over the target. So just a warning, stay far away from that type of merger arbitrage trade. That about wraps it up for episode 25 of the Absolute Return podcast. We hope you have a great week and we will chat with you soon. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.